Good morning. Good morning to all three of you. <laughs> Welcome. Let me pray for us. God, we adore your word, and Lord, may it come to life to us this morning. Holy Spirit, may you fill people's minds and hearts and spirits, their souls, with your presence. And Father, we ask that the words that are coming from your word, from your Apostle Paul, are more than just convicting, that they're more than just the accumulation of knowledge, but that they would draw us to repentance and transformation. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a really quick recap of chapter 3 before we enter into chapter 4. Actually, what uh, chapter 3 was, was referencing uh, back to Genesis, when uh, Paul wrote about God giving Abraham a promise that his offspring would be a blessing or would be blessed by his faith. Then 430 years later, God gave us Moses and the law. And so this law didn't annul the promise that God made to Abraham. It was already a promise to bless his offspring. Rather, what the law did was it showcases the, the beauty, the value of that promise, that promise being the fulfillment of Jesus' arrival for us in his grace and his mercy so that everyone who recognizes him, everyone who acknowledges him and their sin might be attracted to him and discover all the blessings of the promise made to Abraham. So that's just a really quick thing there. So now we're starting a, a new chapter, but the reason why I wanted to do that really quick recap was because I want you to pull that with you into chapter 4 because you have to keep in mind that this letter was written as one continuous letter. It wasn't broken up into all these little segments, right? Chapters and verses that we've done. So to keep it all in mind so that we can bring the proper context with us into chapter 4, not to separate it all out. So let's really try to do that. Let's try to pull that over with us because here in the first couple of verses of chapter 4 is a picture of what Paul wrote about in chapter 3 starting in verses 1 and 2. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Cultures that have a rite of passage from childhood to adulthood tend to understand this a little bit better. When there's a coming of age within a culture, they can see this. Now, examples of this in our culture are like the sweet 16, and I know MTV's just drawn a mess of that one, but that's the closest thing for us US Americans and Canadians. But other examples of this are like the quinceanera for Latin Americans, or the bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah for Jewish cultures. There are many other cultures that have ways of celebrating this coming of age. When a child moves from childhood to adulthood and that responsibility for that child is removed from the guardian. So some cultures base this on sexual maturity, others associate this with this age of religious responsibility, and so we have this age in the United States at age 18, right? Because at age 18, you turned into an adult legally. Some of you mentally, still far away, but legally, you're an adult where you received voting rights, where if you are a guy, you register for selective services, and if you don't do that, you have other ramifications in the future, but you have to do those sorts of things when you turn 18 in this country. Now, Paul's background was in Judaism, so what he's really fully acquainted with is the bar mitzvah, because he had one. 
And when a boy had a bar mitzvah at age 13, it was this marked point of a boy's relationship with God that, all right, now you have responsibility for it. Mom and dad aren't responsible for that anymore. You are responsible for your relationship with God. So when Paul wrote this letter, he had that context in mind, but he also had these two dominant cultures floating around with him, right? He had the Greek culture and the Roman culture right there, and both of these cultures had a rite of passage within them. In ancient Greece, a teenage boy underwent this ritual dedicating their things to a male deity that was symbolizing forsaking all the childish things that they had with them. So whatever toys or whatever clothes or whatever things that they had. And when he turned 18, he became a citizen. He acquired voting rights. He had civic obligations. And girls were married around 14 or 15. That was their sign of adulthood. And so that's the Greek culture. The Roman culture, the other dominant culture, a male would shave his first beard. I would have a difficult problem with that one. I only like, get it right here. I would not be a man in the Roman culture. But then he had this amulet that he wore as a boy. Right? He wore this amulet. And so this amulet was thought to protect him as he was a child. That it was given to him as a boy and this amulet would protect him. Well, he would take that off when he would become a man because that would be a sign that he was a man. I don't need this boyish protect this thing anymore, I'm a man. And so he would take that off and he would change his toga. He would change his toga from this boyhood toga to a man toga, right? So there's a man, it's a little bit lower cut here, shows you the little hairs and stuff like that. So, you know, it's pretty cool. And so he would be counted as a citizen at their census and then he would begin military service. So that was their rite of passage. So Paul had this Judaic, this Greek, this Roman cultural context to draw a picture for the readers of this letter, that a child, as an heir to his parents' resources, was going to inherit everything from his parents, with any culture you're in, right? Greek, Roman, Judaic, it's all the same. But as a child, even though all of those resources were going to be his, there was a not yet aspect to it. And the child's access would be limited to the inheritance. The heir is the owner of the inheritance, but he's no different than a slave in that he doesn't have access to the inheritance as a child. Right? As a child, the parents give him access to their wealth as long as they're alive. But if they die, if that person is still a child, the child does not have free reign of the inheritance. He is put under a guardian. He's put under a custodian, a manager, and the estate is managed by somebody else even though it is his. Right? So the child has this eventual ownership by promise of his parents, but not immediate ownership. As a child, the heir has to wait. The inheritance is not in effect in that he can't experience that inheritance as he wills. The inheritance is acted upon based on his parents' instructions to a future guardian, custodian, manager, and then that guardian acts accordingly to whatever that document is, right? So a trustee to a trust document, sort of like that. And so as a child, he is an heir without say. He has no rights to determine what happens with the inheritance. But, once he comes of age, he does have say. He does have rights to do what he wants with the inheritance. 
And so the guardian simply follows the instructions set by the father. If dad doesn't want the kid to touch that until 18, 20, 30, 40, 50, he can't touch it. And so that is set by his father. And the heir does not experience the inheritance even though it is his until the date set by his father. And his guardians will watch over him until he comes of age. And that's happened throughout history with nobility or royalty when you know an emperor or a king is just too young to take over the throne. They'd have this council or they'll have these guardians to take up this child until he was old enough to take over. So the heir is no different than a slave in his freedom to act. He has no rights to act on the things that are his, even though they're his, and he can't act upon that inheritance. Then in verses 3 through 5, Paul expounds on this illustration by writing about when we were slaves and how we moved into being children of God. We were slaves who became children of the king. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Before we came of age spiritually, by coming to faith in Jesus, trusting in the promise of God that he first made to Abraham, we were children enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now these elementary principles refer to elemental spirits. So if we were to put these physical names to these principles or spirits, they would be referred to as things like earth, wind, and fire. You know, that, that awesome 70s band that you hear their music at every wedding even now. Or sun, moon, and stars, right? It's referring to those things. Paul knows the cultural backgrounds of these Galatians. He knows it really well. He's one of them. I mean, he's from these contexts, right? So that before they were Christians, before you guys were Christians, you were enslaved to the superstitious thoughts of earth, wind, and fire, especially in September. <laughs> and you were enslaved to like the sun, moon, and stars and, and all these things, right? And so these guys, they were enslaved to astrology, enslaved to horoscope, enslaved to the fortune tellers that say like, oh, the crystals say this and the stones say this. And they're enslaved to all these things of the earth where they believed, you know, these types of things, they can dictate my life. So they can dictate my boy's life. I need to give him an amulet to protect him in his childhood. And people were ruled by things like this. And these elementary principles, right, also had this relevance to the Jews, even though the Jews weren't necessarily looking at stars and stones and things like that. But they were looking at the Mosaic law in the same fashion. That the law was providing this superstitious thought, like, oh, if I hold on to this, I'll be fine. And it enslaved them. And so Paul mentions these enslavements in verses 8 and 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You were slaves. You became children of God. How in the world do you want to go back to slavery? after you've experienced freedom? Well, the questions are this. Maybe they never really experienced freedom. So they don't know the difference between slavery and freedom. Or maybe they've experienced a false freedom, where they think they've experienced freedom, but they're actually still in shackles to the bondage. And so this false freedom, in that some have experienced 
freedom, maybe in a way that it wasn't meant to be experienced. For example, back to the illustration of the guardian looking after a child. See, the guardian was charged to care for the child. But let's say this, that the guardian didn't do his job. Worse yet, the guardian did the opposite of what he was supposed to do. And so this is likened to how Satan uses the law of God. The, the law of God is perfect. It, it is that good guardian in, in that what God created in his law was good for us. But the way the Father intended it to be used has been manipulated. It has been misused where Satan, like a bad guardian coming in, has manipulated the law to oppress people rather than to liberate them. See, God and Satan actually use the law for the same purposes. Right? Because what the law does is it reveals transgressions. It reveals sin. That's what the law does. The huge difference comes after those transgressions are revealed. See, Satan uses the law to condemn and drive people to hopelessness. Or a more subtle way he does this is he drives people to indifference where it doesn't matter anymore, or like, what's the big deal, or it's not even relevant to our world today. Whereas God uses the law to point people to a hope for justification in Jesus. Right? God uses the law to point out that He is a God of justice, He is a law of grace, and that does not exist if there is no law, because there is no benchmark to do that with if there's no law. And so even though we are found guilty under the law, He has given us grace. He can provide justice. And so we still have that freedom available to us because we have been given Jesus. Verses 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, God had a plan. And Jesus was sent at the perfect time. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God sent forth His Son. What does that mean? Jesus was already in heaven with God. He sent forth, right? He was there with Him. He pre-existed the time He showed up on earth. And here we see that Jesus is fully divine. He was sent forth. But He was also fully human. Born of woman. And then Paul wrote this phrase, born under the law. The law which proves that every single human ever to exist in human history is guilty of sin except for one, Jesus. Now why is that important? Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, Jesus didn't just come to set us free from the bondage of sin. That's not all He did. He came also so that we would be adopted as God's children, that God would be our Father. Did all this background work of rites of passage and inheritance and all this stuff, right? You are adopted as a child of God, meaning you have full inheritance rights. He put you in there. He weaved you into His will. He weaved you into getting everything and so God's plan all along was to adopt you into His family to be heirs of His kingdom. Not just to save you, but to adopt you as His child. And so we've moved from slaves to sons. 
daughters. And so you see this picture that Paul was drawing here in chapter 4, looking at verse 2, until the date set by his father in verse 5, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you see the intimate relationship God wants to have with you? Adoption. To make you an heir. Not just to say, I saved you. Go along now. You're his kid. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Here's kid. So God didn't just want to save you from enslavement to sin. He also didn't just want to adopt you as an heir. There's something more. There's something more than just inheriting his kingdom for the future because we see this, right? Like recently a cat got the inheritance of some rich dude instead of the kids. So you can be adopted. It doesn't mean anything more than you're more than a cat, right? So it doesn't mean anything. This is what else God wants. He also wants to experience a close relationship with you now. He wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want to treat you like a cat, right? Now by his spirit, see... God's forgiveness, his reconciliation, his redemption, those things are really deep. It's not just lip service. It's not just something casual to where like, yeah, I saved you. Yeah, you're my kid. I can just give you something. Because giving you something is not all that big when you have everything, right, really? Right, if I had a million bucks and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll give you a hundred bucks. It's not a big thing to me. But in real life, it's a big thing to me. But he wants this rich relationship with you. And that's through his promise and his word and his spirit. That doesn't mean everything in your life or in the Christian's life is going to be problem-free or easy. What it does mean is that he's your father and you can cry out to him, Abba, Father. And he will hear you as a child. That's more than just throwing money at you. And it's more than just saying you're forgiven. That he wants to be with you intimately to have a relationship with you. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Did you really hear that? Do you really realize who you are? You are no longer a slave. You are an heir through God. I don't think we really hear this because if someone came to us like Bill Gates and said, I'm going to adopt you and make you an heir, you'd pee in your pants. You would. I'm a billionaire. I'm a billionaire. You'd freak out. You'd be like, I'm set. I'm set. I can have a lawn just like his that's heated. My grass can be heated. Like I can have everything this dude has. You'd freak out. Do you realize you're an heir of God? Created all this stuff. Now, do you live like that? Because I know if I was an heir to Bill Gates, I'd walk a little different. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. I'd drive a lot different, though. (laughs) I'd drive a lot different. I'd drive a lot faster. You'd walk different. Are you still walking like you're a slave? You're shackled? You're just walking? You're not free from sin? Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. See, don't be fooled about knowing God. A lot of people think that they know God, but they really don't know God because they don't know Jesus, and if you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. You may be interested in God. You may know about God, but you don't know God. 
Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, now this is something that I find really, really awesome. You've come to know God, that's great, right? You come to know God. But then there's this. You're also known by God. Imagine the person you've always wanted to meet. Some of you single guys are thinking of that girl. I'm thinking of like some big shot though, right? Not just the girl you like. Some big shot that you've always wanted to meet. The person that probably everyone else knows and you really want to meet them. And they come by and they actually call you by name. Hey, what's up? John or whatever your name is. And they actually know you. See, God knows you by name. He knows what's most important to you. He knows all of your weaknesses and flaws and still likes you. He knows everything about you. And he still loves you. Everything. All the the messed up stuff, he wants that too. Did you ever think about that? He's not waiting for you to be perfectly packaged and pretty and then work all the junk out of your life and then present yourself all nice and everything. He just wants you right now, the way you are. Nothing changed. Just like this. Like this. That's how he wants you. You're perfect the way that you are with him. And he knows you. He wants that person. Even if you're lying to yourself right now and putting a facade over yourself of who you really want to present yourself to be, He can see through that and he wants the real you, the real core person that you are that's all messed up and is lying to yourself and doing all these other things. To be known by God in that intimate way, in that real way, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? How? What slave goes back to slavery once they're free. A a real slave, right? Who does that? Who runs to the law when you can go to Jesus in faith who has fulfilled the law? Who proves their worth by works when you're fully accepted by faith? Verses 10 and 11. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul was saying, I think I wasted my time with you guys. Right? You, you, you can't earn anything with God. All this stuff you're trying to do when it's actually just a life of faith. We were once slaves, but in Jesus, we are his heirs. We are his children. Do you guys realize that? Then why aren't you living that way? And so Paul, you can tell that he's just hurting for these guys and saying like, why don't you live like who you are? You're an heir to heaven, to the kingdom of God. Live like it. Walk like it. Strut like it. Right? Are you a slave or a child of God this morning? You. And if you're a slave this morning, you can be adopted as an heir today. Now, if you're a child of God, Are you living like one? 
Are you kind of possessing your space like one? Have you regenerated from slavery to a child of God? And so here in these verses, we read this rebuke by Paul, where Paul is essentially calling them out on their religiosity that just because you observe certain days, months, and years, and season, it doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Right? Hanukkah is on Thursday. It's the same day as Thanksgiving. My wife and I were on a date this past week, and we met this really cool Jewish couple, and we got to talking with them, and, and we were just chatting away, and they were sharing with us that Hanukkah was the same day as Thanksgiving, the first time in 68 years, the next time it won't happen until 70 years, so this is her only time that she's going to be able to do this. But then she was kind of stressed because she was like, what am I going to serve? Like, what am I going to serve? And I was like, well, why don't you make like mashed potato latkes or something, yeah, something like that. But Christmas is coming up, and most of the Western world celebrates it, right? You go to any country, all their malls are done up and everything's done up. But how many people celebrate Hanukkah or Christmas as part of their genuine faith in God versus those who kind of celebrate it as some fun thing or cultural thing or just something other than what it really is? And so Paul called them out on this. You observe days, months, seasons, years, but really, those things don't mean anything to you. You're just putting up the lights of the Christmas trees and the candy canes and the stockings. It's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a bunch of religion, or it's just a little fun event that you can exchange gifts or do cultural things. But where's the intimate relationship with your Heavenly Father who knows you? Right? You're His child. You're not a slave. You're his kid. And you can get the tone from Paul's letter that he's just sickened with how the Galatians' faith in Jesus deteriorated to celebrating religious events as slaves rather than being a child of God, that we have a relationship. But then there's this change in verse 12. There's a change in tone, right? Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. Paul needed to get across the severity of straying from the truth of the gospel. But then he is changing his tone here and he's trying to get across his genuine, tender love for them. See, Paul was their pastor. Paul was the Galatian church's pastor. And as a pastor, there were times for Paul to be more serious in his rebuke. And then there were times for Paul to be more gentle. There were these relationships, not just with God and his children, but also with Paul as their pastor to the Galatian churches. Now, we all know that Paul was an apostle, but this is something I want to get across to us, that not all pastors are apostles. And I'm going to get to the reasons why a little bit later, but I want you to get that in your head, that apostle is distinct from pastor, and the apostles of Jesus were distinct people being that all apostles had a tangible experience with Jesus himself. They all physically saw Jesus. They were all commissioned by Jesus himself. They were all baptized by the Holy Spirit. Jesus used the apostles to be his direct communicators to the world. Jesus gave his authority to his apostles. And the apostolic authority written to us in the scriptures was given to them by Jesus and the apostolic succession of authority is not passed on from one apostle to another person. It's directly from Jesus. And so what we have in terms of authority today, this is important, 
It's not from people. It's from God's Word. God's authority is in His Word. This is why the Word of God is so important. I bring this up because pastors are not apostles. All right, so a pastor does not have the same authority or inspiration as an apostle did. The pastor can't lay down the law like the apostle, and the church can't defer to the pastor as an apostle for apostolic authority. The only authority a pastor has is in the Word of God, guided by the Holy Spirit. That's it. That means just like anybody else. The authority is in the Bible. And I tell you this because I care for you that you're not led astray by false teachers or false teachings. That if some charismatic dude comes up and just really sweeps you away and you like what they hear, compare it to the Word of God. It's not about their personality or their charisma. If someone's saying something through the Word and you're like, that doesn't sound right, and you can look it up yourself and you can see that. Because if someone changes the Word of God at all, they are a false teacher. If someone claims something different than the Word of God, that is a false teaching. Right? Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Yes, John was writing about Revelation. Well, that's really the entire word of God. I can't add something to Galatians. Right? I can't take something out of Galatians. It's just the way it is. He's an apostle. And pastors need your prayers to stay true to the Scriptures. I really need your prayers. I attempt to as best as I can. And I pray for that. But, you know, being in ministry for 13 years now, I think it is, too many pastors stray from the Word of God. Too many are interested in fads or marketing or different things to sell you on. But may we be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Not looking for fads, not looking for just marketability or anything like that. Don't just accept what I say or what any other pastor says without examining the scriptures yourself. Do your homework. And I bring this up because in verse 12, Paul changed his tone from rebuke to the tender heart of a pastor. And I want to point out some things about Paul in these next verses because I think it's very telling in these next verses, the heart of Paul. And there are things I hope that will be helpful to you because I think some in the church have been led astray by the world and what the world expects out of servants like pastors. For example, I think a lot of people are looking at external things such as personality or speaking ability or charisma or if a certain person looks cool or looks apart or looks like a hipster or whatever when they look at a pastor right but then you take a look at Paul verses 13 and 14 you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first and though my condition was a trial to you you did not scorn or despise me but received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus I would love to be received by you as an angel of God See, Paul was toe up, right? Now, some believe at this point, Paul appeared to the Galatian churches after he was stoned in Acts chapter 14, 19 through 20, because it mentions that he went to Derby. Derby is part of Galatia. 
So this is some of the thought. That he came from being stoned, not, not drugged, but like stoned. And after that, he looked so bad, people thought he was dead. Imagine you saw some dude that looked like he's dead. Like maybe he was missing a part of his head. I don't know. Like something, he looked really bad that people thought he was dead. And so others believe that this is like a bout with malaria. And so there's all these discussions about where Paul was from. Was it because he was stoned? Was it because of what happened in the Damascus Road and knocked down and he just had this disfigurement or he just looked really bad and maybe he was blind from that? Or was it malaria? All these different thoughts. Whatever it was, whatever he suffered from, it was bad. I don't know what it was, but it was bad. That's all I know. And the Galatian church didn't scorn him or despise him. They didn't reject Paul because of those superficial things. Paul was in terrible shape when he preached the gospel to them. His condition, as it says in his word here, was a trial to them. Like, I don't know if they were like, they couldn't keep their food down when they saw him. It was a trial. Like, oh, oh, oh. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. But it was a trial to them. But they didn't look at the man as much as they looked at the message. Right? Paul was in really bad shape. So this is something I'm concerned about in the church, is that people are more concerned with image than they are with message. Does the church planter look a certain way, or does the pastor look a certain way? Does he act a certain way? Does he look like he's at Walmart, or does he look from, he's like, where's... Hey, Ashbury, or like, where does he look like he's from? And they put so much on image rather than message. See, if Paul himself were to appear in our Western churches today, Paul himself, think about that. That dude's awesome. But if he appeared himself, I actually think most churches would reject him, quite honestly. And it's not because he's not a great pastor or that he didn't have the gospel message, but I think it's because I think a lot of churches are like the world in that they look at superficial things because Paul wasn't a pretty dude, right? And in fact, Paul didn't always even speak well, according to some of his critics, because there's always critics, always critics. And you can think that some guy speaks the best, but then you're going to find somebody just down the road that thinks that they're horrible. And they thought that of Paul, and I think that's mind-blowing. How can you possibly think Paul is not a good speaker, preacher, teacher? How is that possible? But they did do that in Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. And his speech of no account. What? Paul? No account? Who are you? Like, who are you? When you speak, it must be like, God. Like, how can you say his words are of no account? But th those are critics everywhere. See, church tradition also describes Paul as this. This is pretty awesome. Paul was small, bald-headed, bow-legged, stocky, with a unibrow, <laughs> and a long, crooked nose. That is church tradition. It's part of the apocryphal books. See, that's not a description that I read of most church planters or pastors that I've seen. I've gone to a lot of church planting things. They don't look like that at all. Actually, most of them look pretty pretty. They look pretty. They don't look handsome. They look pretty. Serious. They look pretty. I look and I'm like, man, you're pretty. pretty. I can say that confidently because I'm a man. I'm cool. You're pretty. And they look pretty hip. 
right? They look like they got things together. They have cute wives and they have cute kids and they, they, they look like everything's put together and they, they, all, they all, everything looks good. They all look like none of them shop at Walmart. They all look really good. And I think many churches today would reject Paul based solely on his physical appearance, right? Like, I mean, they'd reject that. Like, oh, dude, <laughs> um, you can plant somewhere else. Not here, though. You can plant somewhere else. Here we have this guy on his physical appearance and his inability to speak at times. He had poor eyesight, right, which was referenced back in verse 15. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. And that's a big part of why he was in Galatia. They had this eye ointment that they would put on people. And so he, I'm sure he, when he was there, he was there and he was being accompanied by Luke, who was a doctor. And so he had all these problems. He had all these problems and he still gets shipwrecked and he still gets bitten by snakes. I mean, that's bummer to be Paul, man. But can you imagine if the Galatian churches were superficial in their receptivity of Paul and the gospel message? They wouldn't have Jesus. They wouldn't have Jesus in their life. And so I'm concerned for the church that feeds into this superficiality where people don't feel welcome because the church is just too pretty and it's too hip and it's too whatever it is that people don't feel like they're pretty enough or that they're smart enough or that they're wealthy enough or that they're good enough or whatever enough. And that's not the church. And that's not what it's people are to expect out of their pastors. The superficiality and the consumer mentality of the church greatly concerns me. How many people would reject Paul in our churches today? And I think it would be quite a few. How many people walk into a church and it feels more like a club? Or you're going to a concert? Or where you go and people just don't feel welcome because they're just not as put together as the other people in the sanctuary. Ask people what they think of their pastor. And I think most of the time you're going to get some superficial answer from them. Right? What do you think of your pastor? Oh, they're funny. Oh, they are a great speaker. Or there's something else. Just something superficial that they'll say. Or they'll divert the conversation and they'll talk about how great the community is or how great worship is or that there's a cool vibe or that there's a cafe or something. But the thing is, I think the question we need to ask is, is the gospel there? How is the gospel present there? Is the gospel present in that church? Is the gospel preached in that church? Is the word of God taught in that church? And many times people shop for things in a church rather than seeking God to lead them to be part of a church. And so when people shop for churches, they look for things like, does it have a good children's ministry, a youth ministry, good teaching, good worship? Does it have parking? Does it have, like all this stuff, right? They have this whole list. And I'm not saying that none of that is important. I'm saying that it all plays into that. But the first thing is the call. Has God called you there? Because if he did, then the other things just don't matter. You just go, and you deal with the other stuff. Maybe you're part of the solution to that stuff, but the first thing is God led you there. And if God led you there, the other stuff, work on it. Help. And when people shop for a church, the list tends to be superficial. 
usually. And this is the most kind of discouraging thing as church planters or church replanters or as people are doing stuff. That people are going with their shopping thing, but they're not being prayerful about where they're going to go. And so people start looking at other things. So they look at giftedness or talent rather than looking at faithfulness. Right? They look at image rather than the pursuit of godliness. And so we need to look at deeper things. Now, am I hitting a nerve with anyone? If I am, I have more. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? See, as your pastor, I need to tell you the truth, even though you may dislike me for it. I need to tell you the truth. I need to stay true to the word of God. I cannot go with the fads of the world. And it's not just even like a biblical thing for me. I just can't. I'm not cool. I don't even know the fads of the We don't have TV at my house. I have no idea what's the popular thing. I can't go there. And so, of course, we want to be culturally relevant, but not at the expense of the truth of the gospel and the preaching and teaching of the whole counsel of God, which is why we do chapter by chapter and verse by verse studies here. And I've heard a lot of feedback from people on what I should preach on next, that I should preach on these topical things next, whether it's marriage or hell or money or the end times or anything. And I get that all the time. Hey, you should preach on this next. We're going to get to it. We preach chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're going to get to it. It just might not be in your timing, but we're going to get to it. And the most important thing I can do as a pastor is tell the truth of the Bible. It's not about my personality. It's not about my speaking ability. If I use notes or I don't or how I dress or whatever, it's not that those things are not important. They are, right? They all have parts. I mean, if I came up here wearing a leotard, Come on, like that's really distracting. It's like, it's just, it's, right? Now, now, get that picture out of your head. And, but what are the real essentials of telling the truth of the scriptures? Right? How, how much prayer does the pastor put into his message? What's his prayer life like? What is his character like when no one else is watching? Is the message even understandable? Is it true to God's word? Are the people the priority and not the self? Those are kind of the questions. Because if you look at verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. See those Judaizers, those false teachers? They weren't looking out for the people and their good. They were looking at their own purposes, not the people's purposes. They were looking at getting their ideas out and what they thought out, their religion out. They wanted to be the ones looked upon to have a greater following and they were passionate about their beliefs, but it wasn't based on the truth. And just because there's passion behind beliefs, that doesn't mean that those beliefs are true. Now what else is evidenced in Paul as the Galatian church's pastor. Verse 18, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. See, the pastor has to reproduce themselves. Not only when I am present with you. A pastor must prepare the church for mature Christian living even when they are no longer present. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. 
See, the effort we put into ministry is so that we can equip the saints, you guys, for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. How are you guys engaging in spiritual growth? Because not all of you are. Some of you are selfish. You're selfish. And as long as you're okay, and as long as your family's okay, then everything else is fine, and you just come to church, and you just do whatever you do, and you don't feel a need to contribute to the church family. And I'm telling you, you're needed here. You are needed here. You have a role in ministering to your brothers and sisters here. Right? Your prayers, your involvement, your availability is invaluable to work in the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So stop sitting idle. Stop being selfish. Give. Serve. You have something to give, whether it's your time, your money, your talents. Don't get stuck in being this superficial, consumeristic Christian. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You're needed in ministry here. And if you don't believe me, just talk to some of the ministry leaders around here. Go talk to someone in the youth ministry or in the children's ministry or in the hospitality ministry or the homeless ministry or the refugee ministry. All these different ministries. Just go talk to them. None of them are just blowing up and turning away people like, oh, no, 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 we can't use any more money. No, 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 no more. No more money. It's just coming out of our ears. Oh, no, no, we can't use any more volunteers. We have too many people. We can't fit any more people in, this, in, in our refugee outreach. Nobody's like that. We need you to build up the body of Christ. Why? So that Christ is formed in you. Verse 19 and 20, My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Paul wrote that his anguish was like giving birth to the same baby twice. Ouch. I mean, <laughs> one time's bad. Twice? Whoa. Because they had this really carefree approach to their faith. Like it didn't matter. Now, this is something that I'm in anguish and I'm perplexed over for some of you. For some of you, it is obvious that Christ is being formed in you. It's obvious. It's obvious. Others, I'm in anguish. I'm in anguish. I'm perplexed because Christ is not being formed in you. Even though Jesus set you free from slavery and you are a child of God, you're free. And I'm perplexed about that. It pained Paul to see that Christ-like character was not being formed in those he taught. And I empathize with Paul. My heart breaks for those of you caught up in the world and straying from the word of God. My heart breaks for those who are wandering and not secure in their relationship with God and his bride, the church. Seriously, I am. I've been meeting with a spiritual director for about two, two and a half years now. This is a common theme for me when I'm speaking with her. I've been meeting with a Christian counselor for three years. This is a common theme when I'm meeting with him. 
And I realize I am a fallen man and I am a weak man and I have inabilities and I have inabilities to lead some aspects of this church and some things I'm really good at and some things we put in place they really work and other things we put in place and they don't work at all. But I need you to know this. I need you to know this. I need you to know my heart's desire for you is that Christ is formed in you. Even if I'm fallen, if I'm unable to do things and I'm not gifted to carry things out, that is my heart for you. That is my heart for you. And my hope for you is that the Word of God is firmly planted in you. That the Holy Spirit fill you so that Christ is formed in you. That is what I desire for you guys. That Christ is formed in you. Regardless of how things look in the ministry tangibly, regardless of all these other things, know that. I want that for you. And I'm perplexed when it doesn't happen. And I'm anguished. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? I really hope not. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your patience and your grace, your love for us. And God, hopefully what was said in the message is not misinterpreted that your heart goes forward Lord to however that looks may your spirit equip people to go about whatever they are led to do whatever you do with them is going to be infinitely greater in purpose and in meaning and in results than anything that can be said from a pastor and so, Father, may you bless each person here. May you touch them. May you give them discernment and wisdom wherever they're at to navigate through this Christian journey. May you bind us closer together as a church family, serving one another, loving one another. In Jesus' name, amen.